0: We will uh, begin today a new series of sermons. We're going to park ourselves in uh, in First in Peter, this particular chapter, and we're going to see where the Lord takes us. The, uh, the The title of this particular series will be called "Growing in Christ." So, we're going to read this whole chapter this morning because it will form the foundation for the next few weeks. So, it's probably probably looking about another, another four weeks of sermons on this particular chapter here, there is a wealth of information and advice for us on how to live godly lives uh, through uh, the uh, beloved um, Apostle Peter. So read with me 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, "'Desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. "'If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, "'to whom coming is unto a lively stone, "'disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. "'Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house "'and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices "'acceptable to God.' By Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, or unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God. "...that they, that with well-doing, ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as a servant of God. Honour all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the King. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, that if a man, for conscience toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully... For what glory is it, if, when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again; and when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed, for ye were as sheep gone going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word once again. Father, we come before you praising you for the way you have revealed yourself and revealed the truth uh, to us through these holy scriptures. We thank you for the way that you have spoken through men in the past and and have moved men to write these words that we may be encouraged and taught by them today. Father, we know that you were able to preserve these words for us, and we just thank you for them. We just thank you for the way they continue to um, bless us. And we pray this morning as we uh, read that we would gain your understanding and your wisdom. Father, we seek to live lives that are holy. We want to grow in Christ. Our desire is to be, um, to live a life that is free of sin. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would bestow your grace upon us, that you would help us to understand how it is that we are to live. And, Father, I pray that you would use me to encourage my brethren here, that they would seek to live more for you, that they would turn away from the sin and they would glorify Christ with every being, with every part of their being, Lord, every day of their lives. We pray these things in the name of our precious Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. A few weeks back I shared a sermon with you about joy and and how when you are, are a believer you have many reasons to rejoice. And the primary passage I used for that was found in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you just flick back your page there just for a, a moment I'd like to recap on some, some of that because chapter 1 forms the foundation for chapter 2. It forms the background and the reason that Peter speaks to us about these particular things in chapter 2. And if you look at verse 3 to 5, I'd like to remind you about some of the reasons that we are to be joyful um, and the reasons that we are to be different to the rest of the world. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 1, "...Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope." By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that faith not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There is much to rejoicing. If we just drill down on these three verses and we think about them and meditate upon them, we will find that we have more than sufficient reason to be joyful every day day of our lives let's look at just a few of them now we worship a god who is abundantly merciful see how it says there that we that which according to his abundant mercy now just think about that for a moment he is full of mercy he is full of grace love and forgiveness we could not be in a better position we can't be in a better position than what we are today we have more riches and more reason to rejoice in this one fact alone than all of the wealth he could accumulate in the entire world. You see, the God who created the universe could have been altogether different. Ever thought that? We had no control over him and his character. The God of this universe could have been entirely different. He could have been a God who wasn't full of mercy. Who wasn't full of grace and love? The truth of the matter is that he chose to be like that. The people in the past, and even some people now, worship gods who who required them to sacrifice their own children to them to appease their anger. We have a God who asks no such thing. We have a God who actually is full of mercy and grace and we had no control over it he is the merciful one he is the gracious one he is loving he is a patient one he is the all knowing he is all powerful he is what he is and he will never ever change and we are in the best possible position we could be he is the same yesterday today and forever and what's even, what's even more important is that this God who has revealed himself through, the, through this book that we read, we call the Bible, revealed himself fully by sending his only son to this world. And the way his son dealt with us, the way his son turned the other cheek, allowed himself to be mocked and scourged and crucified by the people he came to save, show us exactly what type of a God we believe in. If you played Pat's Lotto, and I don't. And I don't suggest any of you do. But if you won the biggest jackpot you could ever, ever win. And you won billions of dollars. And had more money than you knew what to do with. What we have in him is infinitely more precious than all of those riches. Just that one fact that he is like like he is, should make us rejoice and get excited about. Because he could have been different. And it says here in this passage, it's because of his abundant mercy that we have been born again or begotten again. He did not want us to perish. Do you get that? While we became his enemies... While we turned our back on him, while we broke all of his laws and we chose to ignore him, our creator, the one who actually sustains and continues to give life, he chose not to let us go. He chose to chase us. (coughs) He chose to continue to chase us. He chose to be merciful to us and provide a way for us, which cost him a huge amount. He did not want us to perish in our own sin. He did not want us to forever be alienated and separated from Him. So He made a way for us to be born again. The old is gone, the new has come. The Bible says we are new creatures in Christ. We have a new beginning. We have a new future. And it's because of what He did and it's because of His mercy that we have what we have. If he wasn't merciful, he could have chosen otherwise. In fact, he would have been justified to destroy us altogether. Ever thought about that? We were the lawbreakers. We were the sinners. There was nothing good in us that he should have saved us. He could have simply destroyed us and started again. But he didn't. He allowed mankind to continue. And we find ourselves sitting in these seats today because he is merciful and What goes with mercy is patience. I'm sure that you, if you examine your own lives, look at look at your life, and you say, and you have to say, how patient God is with me. If you don't consider the patience of God in your own life, then then I'm wondering what you consider your life to be, or who you consider yourself to be, because we all fall short of that standard which God has and we have all taken much longer than what we have needed to be the people God wants to be I don't think there's anyone here if I asked you this morning are you perfect then you put up your hand and say oh yeah I was perfect a long time ago I sorted that one out none of us are perfect yet God is continuing to be patient and do you know what we need to continue on this daily walk he has to continue to give us grace he has to continue to give us something that we don't deserve So that's a God of patience. That's a God of of immense grace that I can't understand. There is nothing in me today which makes me any better than what I was before I got saved. Did you get that? There's nothing, nothing better in me other than what he himself has put in there. There's nothing I can take any credit for. Because he's done it all. We have an amazing reason to rejoice because we have a living hope. We have a lively hope, as it puts there. Not only did he reveal himself to be merciful and kind and gave us a new life in him, he then chose to give us a home with him in heaven. He then gave us even something more than what we deserved. Again, he went another step forward. He gave us an inheritance in heaven with him. This home, this uh, abode that, that is being created for us at the moment while we speak is incorruptible. It says it can't fade away. It can never rust. It can never be repossessed. It can never be taken away from us. We don't have to work to pay it off. We don't have to accumulate wealth to put a deposit on it. We don't have to pay council rates. We don't have to pay land taxes. It's the most valuable piece of property Anywhere in the universe and outside of it. Forget about the eastern suburbs. Faulkner's the best. I mean, um, (laughs) forget about the eastern suburbs. Forget about the mansions in Turak and South Yarra. Forget about the wonderful beachside homes with ocean views. Are you kidding me? These will look like slums compared to what he's got for us. Slums. And do you know who's building them? Do you know who's building these? Because I don't know if you've ever moved into a house, but when you move into a house, even when it's brand new, you have to keep fixing things up because they haven't screwed this on right or plastered that properly or or put that pipe in properly. Our homes continue to fall apart because the builders themselves and the building materials they use aren't always the best quality, would you agree? But let me explain. Let me share with you who the builder is here. Yeah? The builder is the Son of God. He is the best architect anywhere in the universe. He is the most highly qualified because he's the one who didn't just design. He isn't this designing these homes? He designed the entire universe to run. He designed every atom and molecule, he designed all the laws of physics, he designed everything from beginning to end, and every scientist knows in this world that this universe is so finely tuned that it's astronomically improbable that there isn't a God. Every scientist, every physicist, every research scientist, every PhD out there knows within themselves and they know the facts that when you look at the way this universe is created, when you know that every atom and the way it's, the way it's manufactured, okay, the balance between an, a, a proton and a neutron and an electron and the strong magnetic, uh, strong elect, uh, sorry, nuclear force and the weak nuclear force and the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force, if these things aren't exactly as strong as they are and as big as they are, this universe would collapse. Did you know that? Did you know that with all of the planets, the scientists are looking out there with their telescopes and finding in in all of the other uh, galaxies around and all the other uh, star systems, what they're finding is every planet doesn't match ours. In fact, they've finally come to the realisation that, guess what? In all the universe, we're unique. We're unique. There is no other planet with life on it. Like this. And they'll still look. But they've already come to the realisation that if they haven't found anything yet, they're probably not going to find it now. And that's because there's an architect who created this universe. And he created it just right so that we could live. And that's the man who's building our homes. So does that excite you? Does that not excite you, that you have your name on a title deed, on a property in heaven? (laughs) Imagine the view. Imagine your neighbours. We're living next to angels. I can't imagine the beauty. the Bible says that I have not seen, nor he heard what God has prepared for them that love him. He's given us a taste of it. But can you imagine when we get there? And we don't have to work to keep it. We don't have to pay it off. We don't have to perform religious rituals and, and tally up our good works and hope in the hope that one day we will be there. He just says, have faith and trust me. Have faith. Trust me. You simply have to believe and trust him that what he's telling you is true. And that's why it says that we can't help but love Jesus. We can't help but love him. Because look in verse 8 and 9, it says, Whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And this is the most important answer that you and I need to have sorted in our lives. And this is an answer you can have today. And we are the only ones in this planet, not just in this room, but as if you're a Christian this morning, if you've put your faith in Christ, then there aren't many who have simply said, I'll trust him. So having told us, given us a number of reasons to rejoice and to be happy about, it, even though the world may throw everything else at you, even though everything, you could lose everything in this world and everything could turn against you. When you have these things and you've parked these things in your mind and in your heart, it doesn't matter what the world throws at you. You have reason to rejoice. Look how Peter finishes the first chapter with these words in verse 22 to 25. Seeing you have purified your souls... In obeying the truth of the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever." And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. By obeying the gospel which was preached to us, the Bible says we have purified our souls. We have become pure before him through the Spirit of God. And that causes us to love God back and love each other. Because it says, see what it mentions there? It says, through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart. Fervently, One of the greatest indications that you have been born again in the spirit and through the spirit is that you love the brethren. You love the other ones who are in the same family as you. Jesus clearly taught that the world would know that we are his disciples because of the quality of this love. You see, there is love in the world. Don't, Don't be fooled. Even the unsaved love and receive love. If you, if you believe that there's no love in the world, then, then how do you explain the love of a mother for a son or, or, or for a child and, and a love, a love between a husband and a wife? There is love. There is brotherly love in the world. There is, there is a, a lot of love in the world. Plenty of hate. Probably more hate than love, though. But the Bible says, and Jesus says, that the quality of love that we have one for another is God's type of love. It's a love that actually is self Sacrificing and goes well beyond what the world expects of people when they deal with each other. It looks different to worldly love, it will have a different type of character to it. We need to always be mindful of our love one for another. For the devil knows that love draws people to Christ. Do you notice what Jesus says? They will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. So just think about that for a moment. The world looks at the love that we have for each other, the demonstration of that love, and they say, oh, wow, look at that love. They can't condemn that love. They can't speak against it. They might disagree with the gospel, but that love, that you can't argue against love, against genuine love. So that love will draw them to ourselves and draw them to Christ ultimately. And the devil knows that. So what, what is the one thing the devil will try to do to stop that from happening? He tries to cause disunity in the church. He tries to get you unfocused from what you're meant to be doing, which is loving each other. The first thing he will do and in attacking the church is to actually try and break down that love. But a genuine display of love is worth a thousand words. And a life genuinely lived for Christ will break down more barriers than the best apologetic arguments you can have. You see, there uh, there was one thing that I, that I learnt in my life. And I went through a stage or through a phase in my life where I thought to myself, I have to learn all the best possible scientific arguments and apologetic arguments about the existence of God, about the existence of the scriptures, about all these different things. Every argument I could imagine, I went to learn. Because I thought that through argument, if I could beat them in an argument, they're going to come to my side. You know what I found out? It doesn't work. You can't beat someone in an argument and expect them they're going to, they're going to say, oh, no, oh, you're right, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll capitulate, I'll fall down and I'm going to come on your side. It doesn't happen because people just get their backs up even more. And people will, even if they've lost an argument, even what I've told you this morning, every scientist knows that the, that the universe is so finely tuned that there has to, there's, only, there's only two possible alternatives to that, right? And that one is to believe in an infinite number of universes. An infinite. An infinite number of universes of which we are only one. And it's by pure random chance that we came along. And they have to believe in, a, in, a, in, a, in an infinite number of universes, right, which they haven't seen, which they can't measure. Or... They have to believe in one God who's smart enough to make this universe the way it is and who created man specially for this planet. Which is easier to believe? An infinite number of universes that they can't see, they can't measure, or one God? Well, there's a thing called Occam's razor, okay? And scientifically, this principle says that when you're presented with two possible... Alternatives, as an explanation for something you're observing, this thing says that we are to choose the simplest one. Okay? The simplest one. So which is a simpler one? To believe in an infinite number of universes that you can't measure or see or even, even check? Or to believe in one God who actually created the universe with the, the specifications that it has? They know what they're supposed to be doing. But because they cannot bring themselves to include God in any explanation, they continue to go and look the other way. Winning an argument against them doesn't win. But you know what can win them? Is love. Love can win them. Because deep down, they're all lonely. Deep down, they're all desperate. Deep down, they want a reason to live. And we can show them that reason by the lives that we live. A genuine display of love is worth a thousand words. Talk is cheap, to be honest with you. Plenty of people talk. Plenty of people can can blab the whole day long. But without action, those words don't mean really anything at all. And we have to be people of action, not just people of words, because that's what they're looking for. If there's no conviction in our lives, then our words will fall on deaf ears. They have to see that there's a difference. They have to. If they see no difference between you and them, why would they even consider? Why? Because you're more intelligent than them? Because what? You're richer than them? What reason would they have to go and move towards your way of thinking? Unless we show them the love of Christ, how will they ever receive that love for themselves? When the word of God is demonstrated as well as spoken, it is the most powerful influence on people that are trapped by the devil. Which brings us to the beginning of this passage. We're going to look at the first three. Today we to examine verse 1, 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In the light of what has been done for us, in the light of who we are and who God has revealed himself to be um, and what we have to look forward to, Peter now gets down to business. He says, since you've got all this, since we know all this, this is how we're meant to live now. Okay? So in verse 1 it says, laying aside all malice, and all guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings. Lay aside. You know what that looks like? Looks a bit like that. Turning off something. Let me give you a better illustration. You sat down with a book. You bought yourself a book to read. And you've you got yourself all nicely comfortable, and you've, you've set aside an hour or two, and, you know... The dog's being walked. The food's cooking on the stove, and whatever else is going on. And you're gonna, you're, you're set to read this book, okay? And you think to yourself, I bought this book. It looks okay from the title and stuff like that. Don't know the author, but it looks like it's going to be an exciting book. I love whatever your genre might be, science fiction or whatever it is. But then what happens is, as you sit down to read this book, you notice mm, a couple of swear words. No, okay, All right, we'll get by, get by those ones then you start noticing um, that there are more and more offensive things in there. You'll notice that you notice that the themes that it's actually speaking about are actually completely contrary to what you're believing. And the more pages you read, the more uncomfortable you're getting with this thing. And you get to a point in this, uh, in this reading where you think to yourself, this can't keep going on. I can't keep reading this book because it's, one, it's not enjoyable because I'm, I'm squirming on the inside when I'm reading it and two, it's against what I want, and how am I going to enjoy this book? It's going to be ridiculous. I can't continue with it. So all at once, you stop reading, you close the cover of the book, and you put it to the side. And by all accounts and and, and purposes, you'll never pick up that book again, will you? Because you already know what to expect with it. Okay, so like a bad book that you've been reading, and all of a sudden you realise that book isn't for me. Or some type of food that you've swallowed, or you've, you're, you're chewing on, which tastes absolutely disgusting, and you have to spit it out. That's the idea of laying something aside. Okay, it's something you do that you don't go back to. Okay, it's something that you do. You realise, nah, not for me. This has got to. This has got to go. So Peter, uh, Peter says here, laying aside these particular things. All right, let's look at the list that he gives. He says, lay aside malice. Malice is having bad intentions or thoughts towards other people. Okay? If you love others, though, you're not going to have bad intentions towards them, are you? Because he said, love the brethren and do it with an unfeigned love, something that's purely genuine. So if malice is the exact opposite of what that, that thing is, of what love is. So he says, put malice aside. When you think of the people that you know, don't think of them in negative terms. Don't think of them with hatred in your heart and in your mind. Don't have ill intentions towards them, hoping that something bad's going to happen to them. <coughs> All right. Put, let's put that aside. Guile. Guile means to be deceitful and tricky. It means to be treacherous. In other words, you make plans to get advantage of over other people. In other words, you don't care about them. You will do whatever it takes to get an advantage over them. But Peter says, stop taking advantage of other people. Stop being manipulative of other people. Don't be a trickster. Not just sometime, but all the time. Put this thing aside. So we've got Get rid of bad intentions towards other people. Get rid of trickery and, and, and trying to get advantage of other people. And then he says, Guile. Lay aside guile as well. And that mean, guile means to be deceitful, tricky, treacherous. You make plans, in other words, to, to, get, to get advantage of other people. Sorry, I've just done guile. He, he next tells us to lay aside, sorry, hypocrisies. Hypocrisies is the practice, by a a definition in the dictionary, the practice of professing beliefs, feelings or virtues that one does not hold or possess. Okay, So the practice of professing, saying that you're something, but you're actually not. You don't do those things. So hypocrisies are putting on an act. Hypocrisies are saying that you're one thing when in fact you're actually something else. Hypocrites are not behaving the same way you speak. Hypocrites are also accusing others of being one way when you are exactly the same way. While he walked on the earth, Jesus had to deal with plenty of hypocrites who were in, not just in a position of, um, of authority, but they were powerful as well. So go back to Luke chapter 12 with me. We still got one instance of that. Luke chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. Luke 12, chapter 1, says, In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, in so much that they trod one upon another... He began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware, ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Wherefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in the darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. In other words, The hypocrisy of the Pharisees um, was so evident, was so out there, was so strong, that Jesus felt it was necessary to warn his disciples about it and say, see what they're like? Don't be like that. Hypocrisy in the church is nothing really new. Hypocrites have been around for a very long time. And religion tends to do that to you. But hypocrisy is evident in every realm of society, in politics, in, in, in everywhere. It's not just in, a, in the church. The problem is, in the church, people are presenting themselves as something. So it's easy to to see hypocrisy. If someone doesn't say anything about themselves, if they don't care what lifestyle they live, well, it's having to be even a hypocrite. No one's looking at you. But for the Christian who says that they're following Christ who, and they're a disciple of Christ and their life's been changed and they've got you know this wonderful relationship with God and then they behave like the world. Well, the world's going to say, what are you talking about? You're the same as me. Unregenerate man, though, is a master hypocrite. Happily lives with, with feet in two different camps at the same time. But Jesus warns us that hypocrisy is not something that can be covered up. It'll reveal itself to people. Don't think to yourself that if you're being hypocritical about something that people don't notice it. It'll show up. Because you know why? Because most of the people are hypocrites themselves. So they're able to spot the other hypocrite. Okay? It will show up one way or the other. So if you're pretending to be something when you're not, um, don't expect that you're hiding it for too long. And if you can manage and you are an expert actor and can hide it here, it will be revealed after. The interesting thing about it is that this has to be one of the most common reasons people say they don't go to church. I'm sure every one of you have heard it. You're a Christian? Oh, too many hypocrites in the church. I don't go to church because there are too many hypocrites in the church. Yeah, it's, I'm sure you've heard it one way or the other, that the church is full of hypocrites. Let me ask you a question. Should that be the case? Should it be the case that the church is full of hypocrites? Well, Jesus warned us against it. It's a bit like saying the church is full of adulterers. The church is full of liars. The church is full of every other sin that we can think of. This shouldn't be the case. In fact, hypocrisy should be least seen in the church than anywhere else in the world. And for professing, a professing Christian, hypocrisy, hypocrisy should be something that is laid, as Peter says, aside. It should be set aside in their life. What we speak, we should live. And what we live, we should speak. And there should be a parallel with those two things. So then Peter tells us to lay aside all envies. Well, envies are a feeling of grudging or somewhat admiring discontent aroused by what other people have that you don't. So you're grudging towards them because they've achieved something, they've got something and you wish you had what they had. So you, your attitude toward them is one of grudging. The world plays this game all the time. The world is absolutely full of envy. It is encouraged in the media, in advertising. It's played out in politics over and over again. Politicians are fantastic at trying to play off one group against another. Okay? To win votes, they'll say, oh, this group is holding you back from doing what you have to do, or this group doesn't want you to have the best what they've got, so therefore you vote for us. That's playing envy. That's encouraging people to be envious of what other people have. The communists tried this a number of years ago, and they, uh, it didn't work for them. People who don't have money envy people who do. People who don't have an education envy people that are educated. People who have bad relationships envy people who have good relationships. People with, with husbands envy, without husbands or wives envy people who have those things. People with smaller homes envy people with larger homes. People even in ministry envy each other. There are even pastors whose churches aren't as big as other people at other pastors' churches who envy other pastors because they're caught up in this thing of wanting the biggest church they can possibly get. The list goes on forever. Envy envy can start from something small, from when you're a little kid, to, to encompass all of your life in many different facets. But people who spend their time envying others are breaking which commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet means I am not meant to desire that which my brother has and wish that I had it instead. And envy even goes a little bit further than that, which which means you begin to hate them because of what they've got and you don't. If we can't rejoice over the successes of people that we know. If we can't rejoice when good things happen to our brethren, to our brothers, our families, when good things happen to them. The problem is not with our brethren. The problem is not with our friends or our families. The problem is with us. Pure and simple. If you struggle to rejoice when something good happens to someone else and you find yourself continually criticising them, and becoming angry about when good things happen to them, the problem is not with them. Envy should not be present at all in the life of a genuine Christian who understands what they actually have in Christ. Remember what I told you a minute ago? A few minutes ago. What we have is more precious than anything in the world. So what's the point of envying? It's ridiculous. It's a bit like a multi-multi-millionaire who has, who has uh, many homes all around the world, who has the most expensive cars, walking out of his house one morning and sees his neighbour bought himself a pushbike, a new pushbike. And then says, Oh, I wish I had that. How did he get that? Does it sound ridiculous to you? Well, that's how ridiculous it is when a Christian envies someone else. Because what they have is more precious than multi-millions of dollars. How can you possibly envy someone else? Especially who's in the world, who's going to hell. You can't. It doesn't make any logical sense. It's lunacy. It's blindness. And should not be in our heads, let alone our hearts. Peter says, lay aside these things. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 for the moment. Just to clarify, what category of sin envy lines itself up against? Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. If you think in yourself that there are smaller sins and there are bigger sins, and God, and God is going to only judge the bigger sins, let me warn you. Have a look at this list. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. Is that a good or bad list? They're pretty bad things, mate. Look at the very next one. Envyings. Envyings. God puts, if I envy someone else, and what they've got in the same list as witchcraft, hatred, idolatry, ad- adultery, fornication. He puts it in the same category. Look at it, puts the word right after it murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in the past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's scary. I used to come, and I've shared this with you before. I used to come from a church. I, I, my, the first, when I got saved, I attended a small fellowship of people who genuinely loved the Lord. It morphed into something else. It morphed into a holiness church. Now, the holiness church believes that if you're not perfect, you're not going to heaven. You like that? Because Jesus says, so I take that passage, He says, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. They take that and they say, see, you have to be perfect. If you're not perfect, you're going to hell. So guess what they're preaching about every week? Every week. Don't sin. Don't sin. Don't sin. Don't sin. And if you sin, you're going to hell. If you sin, you're going to hell. If you sin, you're going to hell. If you you sin, you're going to hell. Guess what you feel like after hearing that for a year? It's a disaster. You can't live. And the more you try, the worse it gets because you're so focused on what you're doing you forget about everyone else get out of my way i've got to be careful about this walk this this my day today i can't be putting a foot wrong otherwise i won't be holy enough to get into heaven now that is completely anti-scriptural but you know what how you deal with that if you're a person who goes to that sort of church because otherwise you go loony what you do is you begin to classify your sins Huh? So you know that you can't possibly <coughs> have all your sins covered because the Bible says I shall not cover." The Bible says that if you look at a woman to last after her. The Bible says that even if you hate your brother, the Bible says Jesus opened up this whole can of worms when he explained what the, the true significance of the commandments is. So what you end up doing is you, you end up categorizing you have your really bad sins that God's going to send you to hell for, and you end up having a lesser one that you can have, you can play around with a little bit. You know, I can envy someone, I, can, I don't like that person, I, I really hate that person, but I have not done anything bad to them. So as long as you don't do the murders and the adulteries and the fornications, as long as you don't do the big ones, the big ticket items, you'll be okay. That reminds me of another church that I came out of, which was a Catholic church. Which has remind me the two categories: carnal sins, mortal and venial. Mortal and venial. Thank another ex-Catholic over here. Mortal and venial. Mortal ones do one of those, and you're a goner. You have to go and pray some serious Hail Marys in the church to make up for it. Right? The other, the other one, ah, you can probably get by. Look, you probably spend a couple of nights in purgatory. All right, but You'll get through in the end. So you end up actually having two grades of sin for whatever, whatever you know, because God, God, God's God, got two levels of sin. God doesn't have two levels of sin. If envy, he lines up on the same line as murders and adulteries, every sin that the Bible says we do is worthy of hell. Praise God that we don't have to work for our salvation. Praise God that we don't have to be perfect to get into heaven. But the Bible says we should strive for it. And this is what Peter's talking about right here. The argument always is in the Bible that since you are this thing, that since you have now been saved and purified and have a home in heaven, and that can't be taken away away from you, therefore live like this. Do you understand? Not the other way around. Not because I want a home in heaven and I want to be with God. I want to be perfect. Therefore, I try to live by this to try to match his standard. No. God already knows we can't match his standard. That's why he sent his son to die on the cross for us. So, don't play the game of creating different categories of sins in your life. They're all bad. They not ever excuse jealousies. Envies, don't ever excuse maliciousness, bad thoughts about other people. Look at look at these things that Peter has asked to put aside. They all have to do with our attitude towards other people. All of them. And he says, Lay these to the side, get rid of them. Okay? So the final one that he talks about is evil speaking. The term simply means unedifying speech. And once again, it comes from the heart and your attitude towards other people. Speech that tears other people down. It's backbiting. It's gossiping. And it's not intended to help a person. It's intended to criticise and tear them down. Evil speaking is not the language of Christ or the Bible, but the language of the devil and his angels. We should guard our speech. As James says, the tongue is a very, very small thing but it can cause a huge amount of destruction. We should watch our tongues with all diligence because we can do great damage when we speak evil words. So these things are the things the Apostle Peter says to lay aside, put down, close that as a chapter in your life. And then what, what's amazing is the contrast between these things and the end of the last chapter again. Do you remember? He says, in, um, he says laying aside all malice guile, hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. Look at it compared to First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. True, unfeigned love. Loving each other with a pure heart fervently. You will not do these things. Do you understand? If you love someone, how can you be malicious towards them? How can you think evil of them? How can you speak evil about them? How can you envy them if you love them? Do you understand? So Peter is contrasting, he's saying, we are now should we now should be loving people. These things shouldn't fit. They don't fit in love. There's no place for them. So therefore they should be just laid aside. You don't need to have these things anymore because if you're focused on loving, it's totally incompatible with these other things. Love is the opposite of these things. If love is your motive, then these things should now be against your convictions, against your principles. They should be uncomfortable when you do them, not comfortable. Remember that the example of reading a book. You get to the book, you're getting more and more uncomfortable with this book. You realise it's not what you want to be doing. So what do you do? You close the book, you put it to the side. You're not going to go back to it. Because you know what it's like. That's what we should be doing with these particular sins in our lives. We should close the cover. Stop reading. Close the cover. Put it on the side because the story of our lives is a totally different one now. It's not that old story we're reading. God's made a new story for us. And it sounds a whole lot better than the old one. The motive is now not my flesh but love. Turn to Romans chapter 13, verse 8 with me. We're almost finished. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. And I think... um, Paul explains it a lot better than, than what I can. Paul says in chapter 13, verse 8 of Romans, O no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, It is briefly comprehended in this saying. Namely, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbour. Therefore love is the fulfilling of the Lord. That's exactly what I want to... He has put in a nutshell exactly what I want you to understand this morning. That when you love, these things naturally don't fit. They will naturally be put aside. So the story of my life should now be love. But how to be more loving? That should be our goal. How can I perfect that love? How can I make that love more real? How can I make that love more effective in my life and in the lives of others? How to love more fully? How do I love as God loves? How do I do that? how do i think of myself less and think of the way god loves more so let's answer that question let's look back at that passage in verse 22 again chapter 1 verse 22 of first peter because it sets the scene for the answer here okay and this is what we'll finish with Listen to these words carefully. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. We were born again, the Bible says, And given this new heart to love through the word of the living God. It's through the word of God that we learnt to love. Because we understood now what love is. Because he demonstrated his love to us. It's through the word of God that we come to receive that love. We were born again through it. Because the gospel was the good news that we heard, we accepted, and it changed our lives. We now have a capacity to love as God loves. So, if that's the way we started with our walk, seeing we were purified through the word of God that we could love, look at verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3. As newborn babes... To consider yourselves as babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You and I are now what the Bible calls eternal beings. Okay? We have an eternity ahead of us. So, in every sense of the word, we're babes. Okay? We have an eternity ahead of us. I don't know how long some of you have been born again for. I haven't been born again for more than 30 years. But 30 years compared to an eternity still makes me a babe, right? We're still babes. So Peter says, as babes, desire the milk of the word that you will grow through it. So notice, as it, notice it says there, um, if so be ye have tasted, the Lord is gracious. We have tasted God. We've had a taste of his love and our desire should be to want more of it. And as we we take in more and more of it, we can give out more and more of it. We can grow stronger through it. You see, the very gospel of truth that changed our lives is the beginning of something that will continue on in our lives. The truth of the Word of God is something that we all need to continue to grow into the type of people God wants to be. In fact, to grow into the image of His only Son. That's what He wants from us. The Word of God is the milk that we need to continue to grow in that grace. Let me ask you this morning. You don't have to answer me, but do you struggle with sin in your life? Is it a struggle for you this morning? with sins that you just can't get rid of, doesn't matter how hard you seem to try. Maybe you're trying in the wrong direction. Maybe your effort's going into doing something that, when you should be doing something else. Are the items that Peter tells us to lay aside a problem for you? Is envying a problem for you? Is malicious thoughts a, malicious thought's a problem for you? Is gossiping and backbiting a problem for you? Is your speech a problem for you? It would reveal one thing, that your love is not yet perfected. Because if your love was perfected, you would automatically not do those things, correct? So your desire should be to perfect the love that God has placed within you. And how do you do that? You do that by laying aside these things and picking up something else. You close one book, you put it on the side, and you pick up another one. And you begin to take in that milk, which will make you grow stronger and stronger in that love. Notice how it says, lay aside. That's another word for saying repent of those things. Understand how bad they actually are and say, I don't want to be part of those things again. Understand how evil they are and turn to the one thing that will help you to grow stronger as a Christian, and that is the Word of God. If you're not reading the Word of God this morning, if your desire is not to grow for Him, that you would serve Him more and become more like Him, then you can't overcome sin. It's impossible. Because in order to overcome sin, you need the Word of God to help you grow, which it says here, and you need God's grace you continue to need God's grace to help you to become stronger. Laying aside these things allows you to now pick up a new book, a new source of inspiration to help you love. It's God's Word. It is the most important book you can ever read. It is the most beneficial book you can spend time in. The Word of God is the greatest history book, the greatest story book, the greatest self-help book, the greatest self-improvement book, ever bound between two covers, and we have it. We have it. And we have it in its purest possible form. The principle of putting off and putting on is all throughout the Bible. You want to overcome sin? The Bible says take off and put something else on. If you try just to take off without putting on something else you will never succeed. You'll immediately go and put something else on. Do you understand? The Bible continually tells us, put off sin and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on his character. Read the word of God. Allow that word to penetrate your mind and your heart and you will begin to become more and more like him. If you want to overcome, put off, but remember to put on. If you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, and I believe that most, here, most of you here have, you know how much grace He has for you. Then ask Him for more of it. He wants to give you more grace. He wants you to win. He wants you to be strong. He wants you to be more and more like Him. That's why He saved you. He saved you to be glorified, That he, that He would be glorified through you. If you've tasted that he's gracious, that he's a giving God, then you can trust in his grace to equip you with everything you need to overcome sin, step by step, day by day. And by his grace, you will have the sufficiency that you need to grow. Okay. Do you want to win in this game? Well, I shouldn't call it a game because it's not a game by any stretch of the imagination. This is life and death that we're dealing with here. And we only have one life to live. And after this, the Bible says, there is judgment. Judgment not just for them, but for us. There is only one life we can live. And then we have to stand before a throne. They will stand before a throne to be judged by their works. And by their works, they'll be condemned to hell. We will stand before a throne one day, and we will be judged by our works as well. But the Lord will say, what did you do with the time that I gave you? Show me how you've grown. Show me the lives that you've influenced. Show me how you overcame that sin. Show me the grace that I gave you was not for naught. God will continue to give you grace. Ask it for it. But obey. Because without obedience, there is no growth. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Obey the word. Read it. Ingest it. Love it, because through it, you and I will grow. And these things that plague us even now, that we give excuse to sometimes with our flesh that we still fight with, don't let the flesh win. Because every day is a gift from God, and we should make the most of it. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, then you will be judged by your works, and your works will condemn you. There is no Christian in this room who is perfect and will gain access to heaven because of their perfection. They have only, they're, only, they're only having a house built for them in heaven and having all these things bestowed upon them because they simply trusted God to save them. And they believed that he sent his son. If you haven't done that yet in your life, wasting of the day will bring you one step closer to hell and to an eternity without him. And it will be an eternity of regret. Don't live with regret forever. Christian, don't live with regret now. Don't live with regret that in one year's time, if the Lord hasn't come back, you're going to say, oh, what a waste of a year. I haven't grown at all. Don't waste the time. Don't live with regret. And don't find yourself standing before the Lord one day and saying, Lord, I've got nothing to show. What do you want him to say? Well done, thy good and faithful servant, when we didn't do the basics of what he told us to do. Spend your time wisely. Use it wisely. And God will grant you the grace. God bless you.